indeed, it is my turn. Um, it's good to be here. For those of you who are online, I've been wanting to say for a couple of weeks, Dick Farenhorst gave this great suggestion. Um, there's many, perhaps, people who have joined us at Willoughby Church online throughout COVID-19, and uh, we haven't had the opportunity to meet you because we're not gathering. So if that is your story, you've started watching us on Zoom or whatever this is that we're doing, YouTube right now, Zoom, YouTube, um, we're, uh, we'd love to meet you. So if you go onto our Willoughby Church website, you can find our numbers there, pastoral staff, send us um, an email if you want. Actually, probably not our numbers, but you will find our emails, I think. And uh, send us a note. We'd love to know who you are. We'd love to have the opportunity to get together with you. Uh, this morning, I invite you to terms turn once again to the book of James. We're going to look chapter 1, starting at verse 12, and going through verse 18. So James 1, 12 through 18. Beloved, listen to God's word. <clears throat> Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. The word of the Lord. Several years ago now, about seven years, actually six and a half, when I first arrived at Willoughby Church, a long-standing member of this congregation named Dirk Durover, who I actually just sent God's greeting to this morning because he was on my mind, Dirk DeRover was kind enough to invite me to go fishing on the Vetter River at fall when the salmon were running strong. Now, I'm not much of a fisherman, as Dirk discovered very, very quickly, but I thought this would be an awesome... In fact, I had never bought a fishing license before. That was my first time. Um, but I thought this would be an awesome opportunity to get to know Dirk a little bit, and so 4.30 on, I think it was a Saturday morning, I pried myself out of bed. It's a bit earlier than I usually get up. Uh, drove down to, I think it was somewhere in Abbotsford. It was a gravel parking lot. Dirk had backed up his little Zodiac uh, boat into the water, and after he parked his truck, we both of us got in this little Zodiac with this cool little engine on the back. It's better than rowing, especially because we were going upstream. And uh, he sat on one side of the Zodiac, and I sat on the other side of the Zodiac so that it wouldn't flip. <laughs> and uh, we fished for, I think it was till past lunchtime. I remember eating a peanut butter sandwich at least. And so there was a good six to eight hours that we were out there on the water. And certainly it was wonderful in terms of getting to know Dirk. Um, he's a very thoughtful fellow. He reads commentary on scripture. And so we had wonderful discussion about God's word. And the reality was I caught stuff. 
I caught uh, logs on the bottom of the river. I caught driftwood that was passing by. I got snagged on all sorts of other stuff. In fact, for the majority of the day, Dirk was uh, rescuing my hooks from the bottom of the river. And at the end of the day, as we went back to the truck, uh, Dick could see that Dirk, Dirk could see that I was weary. And um, so we went back and we didn't catch anything. Uh, Dirk never invited me to go fishing again. I'm not sure why. I'm going to circle back around to this story later. I just wanted to plant that image in your head as we begin. Why it's relevant will become clear as we go on. First, let me orient us to the passage before us today, which turns out to be the fourth section in five sections in chapter one of James. If you've been with us, you'll know that James is writing, and he's writing a letter, but he's writing it in a wisdom sort of way, which means that James feels free to be somewhat uh, paratactic. He, he leaps from one idea or one theme to the other theme, as you might do in wisdom literature, from one proverb or aphorism, one topic or other aphorism to another. He does that five times in five discrete ways in the first chapter. As I've said from this pulpit before a couple of times, chapter 1 functions as a sort of table of contents for the rest of the book of James. So he's introducing us, sometimes in very brief, succinct, mysterious form, to things that he's going to broaden and expand upon in the rest of the letter. So if you want to really understand what's going on in these first five sections, then it's important to read the whole of James. And so our series now isn't really just on the first chapter of James, it is actually on the whole book of James. So chapter one functions as a kind of table of contents, and I've shared that before. What I have not shared is that intriguingly, James connects, he links each section of chapter one to the next section. So to give you a picture of what he does in a literary form, it's kind of what happens in square dancing where you have this move, uh, the caller might call out a right and left hand grand. Do you know what a right and left hand grand is? It's, you'll go around the circle, partners will be coming around and you right and left hand like this right around, so the right and left hand grand, so you have distinct people who are all connected to each other, passing each other off. So there's a hinge between them, but they're discrete in and of themselves, and it kind of functions like that in James. I'm telling you this because it's very important to understand the hinge between section three and section four in our present chapter. Now let me just show you the hinges, and then we'll talk about the connection between three and four. So you have in the first section, consider it pure joy, my sisters and brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, dot, 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 so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And then he picks up on this, this there's a verbal link here with this word lacking, and then he thinks, but there is something that the Christian can lack, even if they are mature, wisdom about how to live. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, but dot, 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 not if he's double-minded. And then he links with this idea of double-mindedness to a way that the church was being double-minded in the third section, which we talked about last week, which is over this issue of how the rich and poor were functioning in the body of Christ. I'll say more about that momentarily. That third section is going to be linked to the fourth, and then the fourth is linked to the fifth. In this way, you'll see at the end of our text, he says, through the word of truth, God has given you birth through the word of truth so that you might be a kind of first fruits. 
word of truth. And James is like, words. You've been given birth through the word of truth. And words, words are going to be really important. What comes out of the mouth of the Christian is going to be really important. And he's going to exhort the Christians there. This becomes a major theme in the book of James of how we use our language, what comes out of our mouth. Fresh water and salt water ought not come from the same spring. And, and Jenna will explore that with us more next week. But what I'm interested in is exploring what on earth is the connection between section 3 and section 4. There is a thematic link here, I believe. And we see it when we see what John, ugh, John, James says in the rest of the book. But look at this link. So last week we talked about how in the church where the rich in the world are considered hierarchically of greater value. There's a hierarchy of value in the world. The rich are up here, the poor are down here. But that ethic, and then they're treated differently, but that ethic does not comport, does not fit into God's plans for the church, which is to restore his creational ideals. And the creational ideal is the equality between human beings, because we are all of us created in the image of God, male and female, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor. And so in the church, we do not have a hierarchy of value and treat people differently according to different values because we're equal, even when we recognize a hierarchy of gifting, that some have these gifts and some have those gifts, and so we ought to use people in their area of giftedness. In, the church is to be an egalitarian society, if I can put it that way. Um, because Genesis democratizes the image. Um, in ancient Near East, the image of God would be only in the king, the male king. In Genesis, there's a democratization of the image. Male and female are both possessed of the sacred presence of God. They have an equal value in the eyes of God. So there's no hierarchy of value in the church, even though there might be a hierarchy of gifting. Okay, so that was last week. What's the connection between this emphasis on equality and then what we have in our text, where it starts out talking about, a, there's three sections, this crown of life that we will receive if we have endure under trial. And then there's the central section, and this is the main section of the text, insofar as I can tell. And the others revolve around it. The centerpiece, which is like an anatomy of envious desire. Envious desire, and I'll tell you why I'm talking about envious desire later. Envious desire that gives birth to sin against one's neighbor. And then sin that gives birth to patterns and behaviors that will lead to death. And then in the final section, he's going to talk about receiving every good and perfect gift from God, from heaven, and the word of truth that gives us life. But what I want to explore here is the connection between this whole concept of equality, of value, and being in the church. What's the connection there? And then this anatomy, as it were, of envious human desire. Let me state what I believe the connection here to be. And then we'll spend some time exploring it, and then spend some time exploring James' solution to it. The connection is this. There's a problem. Equality in human communities is unquestionably, incontrovertibly, absolutely God's ideal. So that we here in this room, we here watching on this video, we look at each other as equals under God, equal in value, 
equal in dignity, equal in intrinsic honor that is given us by God. That is the ideal. However, what James knows is that when the distinctions between people in society start leveling off and you become more and more equal, the greater there is the possibility for bitterness, resentment, conflict, hostility, war, bloodshed, all of those things. Let me put it this way. What James understands is that while, again, let me state, achieving equality of treatment in a community, seeing everybody as valuable, is absolutely God's ideal, and we ought to fight for it in the community of faith. While that is true, if and now I'm going to put a point on it. If envious desire continues to exist in and be harbored in the hearts of human beings gathered into those communities, it creates the possibility for greater conflict, greater kind of um, resentment and bitterness and hostility in that community. And James know this, knows this to be true because it's precisely and exactly what was happening in the churches that James is aware of. He will become more personal and expose what's going on. When there's envious desire, it gives birth to sinful behavior against the neighbors that are with you in the church. And then that will give birth to deadly activities. It could actually lead to bloodshed. Watch how James articulates this in James chapter 3. And chapter 4, if I can find it, James 3, 13 through 16, watch what he says here. So as the church was indeed becoming more and more equal and championing and pioneering this value of equality, rich aren't up there anymore and poor down there, even though they may continue to be rich and poor. Women aren't down here and men up there anymore. We're equal in value in the church. Here's what was going on. James 3, 13 through 16. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it. Why? Well, because such wisdom, James goes on, does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. Where you have envy and selfish ambition... Okay, when you have envious desire, James says, there you find disorder and every evil practice. You see the progression? It's a reflection of exactly what he's saying at the centerpiece of our text today. Envious desire gives birth to sin, which gives birth to death. It's the same progression. James 4, 1 and following, we see the same thing. And watch how he personalizes it. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Among you, church? among you who are becoming God's egalitarian society. What causes that? Don't they come from your desires, your envious desires, that battle within you. You want something, but don't get it. You kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. You see how it goes? As the church becomes more equal. As the, de- as the hierarchy of value distinctions become less, we see each other as peers. We see each other as equals. To the degree that we do that, the greater the possibility of conflict in the church. And because of envy, 
So equality can actually be a problem. Tocqueville, by the way, saw this a long time ago in democratic societies. When we eradicated the king and the queen and all the classes, he said the, the probability is because envy exists in human hearts, it's going to get bad. There's going to be conflict. I'm going to explore why that is true in a moment. This is one of the main questions. Why is it that as we actually learn to see each other as equals, do we, um, it, it inflames envy that will lead to violence? It's the one thing. And then we're going to look at the solution, as I said before. So first, let me just try to pull this out a little bit, because this can be a bit confounding for us. And in order to do that, I want to depend on a scholar, a French sociologist, anthropologist, philosopher, theologian, all around polymath by the name of Rene Descartes. He was Catholic. Rene Descartes essentially spent the whole of his very prodigious literary life studying this exact problem the problem of envy and the problem of equality and how the two can clash together and create conflict and hostilities lead to violence and then the solutions to the violence. He was an unbelievable thinker, very, very difficult, but the kind of nuts and bolts of his thinking I think are comprehensible for us, especially if I don't put all the fine nuances that Descartes, um, René Girard puts on it. Okay, so let's just look at Descartes. He says this, first of all. There's a couple of pieces to this puzzle. He says, first of all, Human beings are unique from the animals. Well, that's not overly profound. But we're unique from the animals insofar as we have desires. Animals have desires, to be sure. They have basic desires. They have the desire for food, the desire for shelter. They have the desire for reproduction. After an animal's basic desires have been satisfied, um, the animal doesn't start looking around for other things to desire, right? He doesn't desire to read Shakespeare, doesn't desire to learn how to play the piano. Does it, it, but human beings, on the other hand, Descartes, uh, sorry, I say Descartes because it's René Girard and René Descartes. Anyways, if I say that, just do a code switching and realize I'm talking about Girard. But Girard says that human being, quite alternatively and contrarily, is a bundle of desires, after our basic needs are met, we begin to turn outward externally to see what else we can desire. But here's the key. Here's the thing that's really fascinating. We human beings don't know what we want. After our basic needs are met, we actually don't know what to desire. We do desire, but we don't know what should be the object of our desire. And so, what do we human beings do? How do we learn how to desire how, how to know what to desire? Well, Girard says this. He says, we learn it by imitation. We learn what to desire when we see other people desiring it. We learn what to want when we see somebody else wanting it. It's a very profound insight, and actually not overly profound because you can see it very, very easily. How do we learn what to desire? How are our desires manufactured within us? Well, the classic example, of course, is to go into a nursery and watch how little toddlers function. Doesn't matter if they're three, four, five years old. Invariably, if there is a nursery and it's filled to overflowing with toys, and one child sees another child playing with a toy and fawning over this toy and loving this toy, the other, seeing this child desiring that toy, will start to desire the same toy. The child learns what to desire by seeing the desire in another person. Girard says this same thing happens 
in um, literature when it comes to romantic relationships. This is one of the huge themes. He explores, he does a survey of vast amounts of literature and he says, this is so typical. A man or a woman has a potential suitor nearby. Maybe it's even somebody that they're engaged to. They have a suitor, but they don't actually desire them at all. It's kind of a tragedy until another prospective suitor comes along and starts desiring this man or this woman, finds them attractive, finds them chivalrous, finds them beautiful, and then the one who previously lacked the desire starts to feel the twinges of jealousy, starts to feel the twinges of desire in themselves. They learn what to desire by seeing the desires of others. All good and fair. Here's where envy comes in. What happens when there's one toy? and two children. <laughs> what happens when there's one man and two women, or one woman and two men? Well then, I want what you have, and I don't want what you to have it. It is envy. And then the one child goes to the other child and bites them on the ear. And those of us who have had multiple kids have seen this happen in spades. And then the two men who are fighting over the one woman escalate in their hostilities to the point of challenging each other to a duel where one of them dies. If our desire um, is, maybe there's two objects of desire, but this is a phenomenon too. There could be two Tonka truck toys that the kids want, but actually, even though there's two of the identical same toy, they want the same one. Why is that? Because somehow you're possessing the toy takes away something from me. And so envy can operate when there are multiple objects of the same desire. Okay, so that, that might make sense, but then why does equality, why when we actually realize God's ideal and we begin to see each other as equals, we begin to see each other as peers, this is the real puzzle, why does that make, why does it inflame envy? and lead to conflict and hostility, thereby preventing us from living into God's ideal. In other words, why is the Christian community a dangerous experiment, actually, where we can experience all sorts of envy among each other? Here's where I want to come back to the fishing example, because I find it's very helpful in my own thinking. So, Dirk and I are out there in his zodiac with fishing rods and lures and, and hooks at the end of it, and then the little engine... And then Shane and Kai Shap come along, and they have the identical same boat. They come in at the same time. They have the same rods. They have the same lures. They have the same hooks. And as Dirk and I are not catching anything through the six to eight hours of that day, Shane and Kai, who are right beside us the whole day fishing in the same pools, are pulling them in. And to begin with, uh, although Dirk and I smile and say, wow, this is really excellent for you. At the end of the six to eight hours, I actually am asking Dirk to move our boat closer to theirs with a sharp object in my hand. I'm starting to feel envious, and I want what he has, and maybe don't want him to have it. But here's, here's the thing. Okay, so now, maybe it's a really big river, okay, but a commercial fishing boat comes along, and they're pulling in the fish like crazy. Do I envy the commercial fishing boat? Absolutely not. Because the dist I don't compare myself against a commercial fishing boat. I compare myself against Shane and Kai. If there is a hierarchical difference and the value of a fishing boat is very, very different from the value of a dinghy, of a Kodiak, of Zodiac, Kodiak's a bear, 
you know, then, so, but when there is that difference, and this happens in society at large. This happens in society at large. When I was a peasant, I'm not feeling envious about the king and the queen have. I might hate them, but I don't feel envious. I feel envious that the, my neighbor, the guy who's closest to me, has two loaves of bread tonight, and I only have one. Or I become envious because his relationship with his wife is better than mine. We tend to feel envy to those who are our equals, right? If I'm going to feel envy in the church, it's probably going to be with Jenna because we are doing the same, right? She's celebrating right now. Turn the camera around, right? Because we are equals and because, um, yes, so anyways, you, I, I'm not going to expand on that one, but you can fill in the blanks, right? Or with other colleagues, it happens in families. This is why Cain kills Abel, Girard says. It's fundamentally because of envy. Abel, him and Abel are equals. They're brothers. You can't be more equal than coming from the same two parents and being loved by the same two parents. But the very equality that you have demonstrates to you other inequalities. Abel has God's favor and I don't have it. That's not fair. Leo has musical gifts and I don't have them and that's not fair. We're equals. And I want that gift. Or somebody has a really good and healthy relationship with their wife. And so the more and more we are equal, the more we can see other sorts of natural inequalities that arise. Whether it is natural gifting, a natural aptitude to make money, um, a nicer house, whatever it is. And this is what is going on in the early Christian community. Equality, once it begins to be realized and we see each other as peers, can inflame envy if it still exists within us and lead to hostilities. This is part of what's going to go on. I mean, when you slander people, when you talk bad about people, you might want to check your heart to see if you're actually envious of that person. If they've become a model for you and you don't like the glory that they're receiving. And that's going to be a part of that theme, I think, as well. Not steal your thunder, Jenna, but, you know, it goes on. So, the question is, if we are going to reach God's ideal more and more and more, we won't get there until the kingdom comes in its fullness, how do we kill the envy within us that prevents it? James is, in our text, I think he's going to allude to, hint at, um, unveil two things centrally. First, he's going to say voluntary generosity. If you want to kind of um, numb, soothe, be an anodyne for other people's envy, and if you have more, you know, be generous. And whatever more that is, if it's more financially, be generous because there is inequalities between us and there will be inequalities of various sorts until the kingdom come. If you have a great relationship of some kind, maybe be generous and invite them into experience the beauty and the fragrance and the loveliness of that relationship. Be generous. And how do you be generous like that? Well, you remember, second part, third part of our text, every good and don't be deceived. Everything you have is gift. 100% gift. You're not what you are because you can pat yourself on the back. Even if you've made something of yourself in this life, how did you do it? Because God planted gifts in you. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Everything you have is gift. And so give generously. Live like God with an open hand. That's the first thing. It'll help to quell the inflaming of envy in other people. And the second thing, and more um, expanded on in our text, I think, is this. If you want to kill envy, not in other people so much, but in yourself, then do this. Get this. Get joy. 
get joy. The word does not occur in our text, but the concept is absolutely here. Get joy, and get it in particular by receiving the gift of God's grace. The gift of God's grace through salvation in Christ Jesus. That is both an already reality, you get it now, and you can, it'll produce joy in you right now when you just receive it and keep on receiving it, and it's something that you're going to get later, later at the end when God will make all things new, and looking forward to that future reality can also produce in you unquenchable, unstoppable, irrepressible joy. Joy now, because of salvation received, God has given you birth through the word of truth, so that you are a kind of first fruits of all God created. Do we understand what's being said there? When our text says that you who've received the salvation of God, you are a kind of first fruit. What's a first fruit? It's the first fruit that comes out of the ground that's given at the temple to God. God gives to himself you as a gift, as a first fruit. You are the gift of the Father to the Son and the Spirit. You are the gift of the Son to the Father and the Spirit. You are the gift of the Spirit to the Son and the Father. You're a first fruit. You're a gift. This is how God looks at you once he has cleansed you and redeemed you in Christ. You're a gift. You're made new. New creation right here and now. That's how God looks at you. Oh, joy. <laughs> but then not only that, but the beginning of our text Yes, life right now is going to be difficult. You're going to go through trials. You're going to go through temptation. You're going to fight indwelling sin within you. Absolutely envious desire, but blessed. Marcurion, lucky, fortunate. Consider yourself lucky if you go through these trials because once you have stood the test, God will give you the crown of life. The crown of life. He's going to lead you into the celestial city where all things will be new and where we will truly know who we are on that day and celebrate our unique identities while treating each other completely in value as equals. It produces in us joy. And joy, friends, is envy's kryptonite. Joy is the antidote to envy. I was watching a YouTube video. It's um, something I like to do. There was, it was like the greatest hits or the greatest moments of 2016 or 2018 or something like that. And one of the moments really did strike me as truly great. There was a little boy, three, four, five years old, I'm not sure, who was standing in a rowboat which was attached to the dock and he had something like a little Fisher Price fishing rod that he had had in the water. And, or it was a piece of wood, I can't remember, it was a while ago. But anyways, he's standing there in the boat with his little rod off, off the side of the boat, when all of a sudden, this, the biggest bass ever jumps out of the water and lands flat in his boat. This monstrous, huge, beautiful fish lands straight into his boat. And he's knocked over as he sees this, this giant bass come in his fish. <laughs> this giant bass, this giant fish come in his boat. Oh, help me. <laughs> Anyways, um, and he's filled with joy, right? Because he's got the biggest bass. Well, and the reality James is getting at is the same is true of us. The biggest bass, the biggest fish of all has jumped into our boat. And when you behold the biggest bass, when you see it, when you know it, when you've received this gift of grace from God, how much are you going to be concerned about all the little minnows out there and wanting to have what others have? yes. It's going to be hard, but when you have the biggest bass in your boat, my goodness, 
<laughs> okay, let me just drive this home and stop because clearly I can't speak today. Oh, thanks for getting me water, Jen. I need it. Okay, fine. Let me just put, the, put, a, put this home. Um, Lord of the Rings. Anybody familiar with Lord of the Rings? Yes, Curtis. <laughs> Anyways, Lord of the Rings. Uh, my favorite character in the Lord of the Rings, at least on just a few readings here, is a character called Tom Bombadil. Unfortunately, as, as my memory serves, Tom Bombadil does not show up in the, in the movie. So if you haven't read the books, you're missing, in my opinion, what is the most alluring, mysterious, beautiful character of all. He comes up about, I think in my, my book, it's about page 48 to 60, somewhere there, early on in The Hobbit's Adventures. And they're going to write to bring the Ring of Power to Mordor to, to kill the Ring of Power and this kind of thing. And anyways, um, they're in this forest, and um, there's this old oak tree, and the oak tree starts singing this mellifluous song, and the hobbits become curious, and so they come close to this, it's not an oak tree, it's an old willow tree, it comes close to this willow tree, and all of a sudden, the willow, there's a crack in the tree, and it opens and sucks Pippin inside of it. Pippin's one of the little hobbits, and all you see is Pippin's feet, feet kind of tw twisting and tangling outside of the tree, and the hobbits are more... Sorry, the hobbits are mortified. The hobbits are mortified. And they're screaming and yelling and they want to sell, uh, save Pippin. And all at once, as they're kind of leaping about in this way, trying to help Pippin, a figure starts coming in the distance. And it is an image of an old man who looks young. An old man who is young. And you learn later that Tom Bombadil is kind of, has always been there. And this this man comes, and he's got bright red boots, and a bright yellow jacket, and bright blue eyes, and he's laughing. And he's got this jolly kind of spirit about him, and, he, and they're, oh, please help us, please help us. And Tom Bombadil asks them what happened, and they say, our friend Pippin here has been eaten by this tree, and Tom kind of lets off this laugh. Ha ha, it's nothing to him. He's not intimidated, and he goes, and he sings. He sings into the crack of the tree, and the tree, this old cranky willow tree, who's actually envious of the human creatures, we find out, because they can move about the earth, and he can't move. He's planted in one spot. Anyways, Tom sings into the crack of the tree, and the old willow lets the hobbit out, lets Pippin out. Tom Bombadil invites them over for some delicacies to his house. He sees that they're weary travelers, and he, you know, laughs, and he invites them to his house, and you get to Tom Bombadil's house, and his wife Goldberry there, is there, and the house is so warm. There's golden candlelight. There's a table that's been prepared, and there's all rich things on it. There's, there's butter. Oh, butter. Thick butter, there's clotted cream, nice cream, and then there's delicacies of all sorts, which of course to a hobbit is joy upon joy. And you learn that the external expressions of joy in Tom and Goldberry's home is but a reflection of the unquenchable, unstoppable, irrepressible joy that's within them. A couple weeks go by and the hobbits are refreshed and they feel safe and they sleep. Oh, they sleep. It's beautiful in Tom's house. And Tom then asks about the ring of power. And for those who follow the Lord of the Rings series, you'll know that the ring of power is an object of envy. 
Everybody wants the ring of power. Men and dwarves and elves have battled over the ring of power, and the evil forces are coming because they want the ring of power, and they'll fight over it. When Frodo or anybody else puts on the ring of power, and this is an interesting thing, when he puts on, what happens? He disappears. They disappear. The power of the ring makes them insubstantial. It makes them lose their physicality. The ring becomes everything. They become nothing. The power of the ring. And then Tom Bombadil asks for the ring of power. He wants to see it. Frodo has it hidden away because he's not allowed to show it. And he's been finding it such a burden. And in Tom Bombadil's present, he doesn't hesitate at all. He takes out the ring and he places it in Tom's hand. And Tolkien says that when the ring is in Tom's hand, it looks smaller than usual. The hobbits gasp, but it has no impact on Tom Bombadil at all. Tom tosses it in the air and laughs, lets out a hearty laugh. And he picks it up again, and then, horror of horrors, he, try, he puts it on his finger. But Tom does not lose his substantiality. Tom does not vanish. Tom doesn't even fade. Nothing happens. The power of the ring has no power over Tom because joy conquers the power of envy. It doesn't touch him. Oh, to have joy. Oh, to have fullness in Christ. To know what we have received by way of salvation and what we will receive. So may we, friends, in order to have a flourishing life together as the body of Christ, as James is wanting us to have, May we behold the biggest bass. May we remember the giant fish that has leapt into our boat, this salvation in Christ, the ultimate fisher of men. May we remember indeed that this is God's world, and all good and perfect gifts come from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. Everything is gift, even in a world that is so torn asunder right now. Everything is gift, and all will be made new. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.